Children's Church, you can be dismissed at this time. I trust everyone is enjoying this not-so-sunshiny day. It is cold. It is rainy. Uh, but you know what? That's all right. I'm glad you're here. You braved the weather to be with us. And for those watching at home, uh, we welcome you to our morning message. And it is a Christmas message. And I got to say this. Uh, thank you, Lord, for book studies. Um, you know, a lot of times, I, I personally, I feel for those pastors who do topical sermons. Because, I, I mean, I just don't see how they do it. I mean, you got to come up with new stuff every week. And it's like, wow. Um, I'm thankful that we get in a book study, and I know where I'm going to be next week because that's where we stopped, right? And uh, usually we stop only about a half a verse in. But anyway, so I know where we're going. And I just love that here in the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, we've been in the book of Philippians, and where do we land on the Sunday before Christmas? A passage about the Incarnation. And I just think that's pretty awesome. So I'm excited about today's study. There's a lot we're going to be looking at, and I'm just going to go right out of the gate and let you know that there will be a lot of reading this morning because there's a lot of meat here, and there's a lot of folks that have dedicated a lot more time and study of some of the theological uh, importance of what we're going to be looking at. And so I want to glean some of that wisdom from them today. So um, again, uh, just be patient with me, but... Uh, I, I'm excited about what God has for us this Sunday, and we probably won't finish this out. I actually had uh, looking ahead, thinking we would be through this one and land somewhere next week, but uh, we'll see how far we get, and uh, we'll just go, go from there. It is Christmas. I hope everyone is ready, because it's coming. Ready or not, here it is. And uh, I don't know what your plans are, if you're traveling or staying put, but uh, Lord bless you where, where, wherever you go, whatever your plans are, and uh, be safe and enjoy the time together with family. Philippians chapter 2 is where we're at today. We finished up uh, in chapter 1. And so we're going to make our way over to uh, Philippians chapter 2. And so if you want to go ahead and find your place there. Today's message is praise God for Christmas. Praise God for Christmas. Uh, and, and so as we kind of go through this, I think that uh, understanding of that title will come into focus. Uh, we're, we have much to praise God for, much to be thankful for, but we praise God for Christmas. Joy to the world. You know that song? You should. It's one of the most popular Christmas songs ever written. Anybody know who, who wrote that song? Silence. <laughs> Crickets. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? Say that again? Partly right. Somebody else? So that's okay. This is kind of a trick question. There's actually three people that had their hand in this song. You see, we, we think sometimes some of these great songs from long ago, these hymns, we think there was never music wars in the past. Newsflash, there's always been music wars. As long as there's been music, there's been music wars. And so uh, here's how things kind of started. Originally, Isaac Watts was the, the first. Isaac Watts in 1719 uh, had his first hand in that. So uh, let me give you a little history on this song because it is this popular song we sing at this time. And so as we approach this song and sing this over the holidays, you'll have this to think about. Joy to the World was written by Isaac Watts in the early 1700s while he was still in his teens. 
you hear that, teenagers? While he's still in his teens, he wrote this song. Now, check out why he wrote this song. This is pretty cool. So, he was in his church, and he was really dissatisfied with the boring, pathetic songs that they were singing over and over and over. And so, not like a teenager, surely he wouldn't complain. He kind of grumbled a little bit about it to his dad, and he was complaining that, that these songs that we're singing in church, they're, they're, they're kind of not really that good. Now, before we start, you know, getting mad at him, let me, let me give you some lyrics of some songs that he would have been singing in his day. Ye monsters of the bubbling deep, your master's praises spout. Up from the sands, ye docklings peep and wave your tails about. Yeah, real stirring, and it's soul stirring. I, I, I mean, really. Uh, so Isaac often can be heard complaining about the senseless lyrics such as this. So his father got so tired of his complaining, he told him, Well then, young man, why don't you give us something better to sing? So at the age of 18, young Isaac took up his father's challenge. For the next couple of years, Isaac Watts wrote a new hymn for each Sunday. There you go, teens. There's your homework assignment, right? For each Sunday. He became like a preacher poet, well-loved by his congregation, however, not so much loved by some in Christendom. Uh, Twenty years later, while devoting himself to writing a collection of hymns based on David's psalms, he came upon Psalm 98, from which we sing, Joy to the world. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for He cometh to judge the world and the people with equity. Now again, I, I mentioned this was a little controversial for some during the time because... There, when doing the Psalms, it was vital that it was strict word for word. Isaac paraphrased the scripture, but he captured the truth, which is again a priority when we're singing songs that we're capturing the truth and essence of the scripture. And so Isaac did that, but he did it in such a way that those songs of tradition were transformed into songs of truth. And I, I kind of liken it very much to some of the things that we hear and are seeing being done now with some of those standards from long ago. But didn't end there. Again, the original music that they would have sung, uh, that would have accompanied the lyrics was nothing like what we have today when we sing Joy to the World. In fact, a lot of that music of that time would have been set to a very somber tempo. So, with that in mind, many Christmas songbooks give credit to Joy to the World to George Frederick Handel. Parts taken from Handel's Messiah. In fact, there are certain sections that are identical. And the reason being, it was actually a third person who probably gets the most credit for this was Lowell Mason who was a Boston music educator. 
He was born in Medfield, Massachusetts in 1792. And it was Mason, a musician with significant influence in his day, who published his own arrangement of Handel's melodic fragments in occasional psalms and hymn tunes, 1836. He named the tune Antioch. While this is not the only tune to which Watts' text is sung, it's certainly the dominant one. Actually, this tune remains virtually unknown in Great Britain. When sung to Antioch, the text is repeated in the second section, reflecting a particular early American treatment of the melody called a hewing tune. We're getting a music class today. Daniel, you'll be proud of me. I did some homework on this. A hewing tune, now follow me, a hewing tune was... Um, a compositional device that, initi that was initiated by an American-born composer, William Billings, 1746 to 1800. This is where, this, for those of you who've tuned out, tune back in, this is where voice parts enter one after the other in rapid succession, usually repeating the same words. The results of the Hewing Tune section is quite effective for the first stanza. Heaven and nature sing. Heaven and nature sing. Okay, that's what that's called. And the second stanza, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy. And the fourth stanza, anybody know what that one is? Wonders of his love, wonders of his love, yes. And so for the third stanza with the text, far as the curse is found, echoing of Genesis 3, 17 to 18 and Romans 5, 20. Again, the scriptures with this authority and its influence. The hewing compositional device, and this is a quote, seems a bit rollicking. For those of you who wonder what that word is, I had to look it up too. It's joyful. Joy to the world. The result is a favorite Christmas hymn based on an Old Testament psalm set to musical fragments composed in England and pieced together across the Atlantic in the United States. And that's the rest of the story. So that's how we got joy to the world. So you'll never sing that song again. Some of you are thinking, yeah, I'll probably never sing it now. You've ruined it for me. Thanks, Pastor. No, hopefully you will sing that song and you'll recognize where it came from. And as we look into today's text, it's a very fitting song because Paul has been trying to encourage the believers about joy. This is one of the most joyful books in all of the New Testament. And if we're going to look at the context of chapter 2, though it's Christmas, and I'll kind of depart just a little bit, I want you to keep the full picture in mind. I want you to keep the whole context in mind. And here's the full context. If we're going to experience joy, if you and I want to experience joy in our life, it's going to be a result as of unity which comes from faith in the gospel. That's what Paul's been encouraging the people at Philippi. If you want to have joy, and you should, you need to have unity because of the common bond of Jesus Christ. And our joy is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with that said, let's take a look at the morning text. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself 
of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning. We pray that you'll be glorified in us and through us that through the teaching of your word today, that hearts will be reached, souls will be stirred. Lord, that we'll recognize that at Christmas, we not only celebrate the coming of Christ, but Lord, we look to the cross of Christ. And we one day long and look for the consummation of Christ. And Lord, I pray that in the meantime, as this message goes out, if there be any listener here today, has never received Christ as their Lord and Savior, Lord, the greatest Christmas gift they could ever receive would be Christ. Convict us of our sin, draw us near to you in repentance and faith. Lord, may we put our trust and complete surrender in Jesus' finished work of Calvary. And so, Lord, we look to you in adoration, in praise, and we praise you, God, for Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. Our outline, if you're taking notes uh, today, uh, the first point we're going to look at will be found in verses 5 through 7, and we're going to look at the coming of Christ. And that's what we do at Christmas. We celebrate the coming of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. And so we're going to look at that in verses 5 through 7. And then we're going to look at the cross of Christ, and that's found in verse 8. Again, Jesus' point in coming was not just so we could have gift exchange and festivities and, oh, little baby Jesus, you know. Everybody in the world's good with little baby Jesus. They don't want to talk too much about the Christ of Calvary. And yet that is the point and purpose of His coming. And so we'll talk a little bit about that as well. And then we're going to look at the confession of Christ. And so what does it mean to be a believer? What does it mean to confess Christ as Lord and Savior? What about the confession of Christ? Well, we'll unpack that as well as we see here in today's text. And so if you're taking notes, that's what we're looking at. Again, how far we'll get this morning, we'll see. Uh, We may not complete that, uh, but that's what we're aiming for today. So let's begin with the coming of Christ. You see here in the first section, verses 5 through 7, if you will look back again. And, And we won't spend a whole lot on 5 though five is what gives it its contextualization. So let me talk about that for a second. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now again, what's Paul been talking about previously? He's been talking about uh, how we as believers uh, should recognize that if we're going to let our conduct be worthy of the gospel, uh, there needs to be some transforming grace going on in our life. 
we should be growing more and more, being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And so if you know Christ is your Lord and Savior, then our responsibility is to die to self. Right? Take up our cross. We need to surrender flesh and follow the Spirit. The Spirit's at work. He who's begun a good work in you, He will complete it. The question is, am I wrestling with God? Am I getting in God's way? Am I preventing God from doing that sanctifying work that He desires to do in me and through me? And oftentimes, yes, that is the battle, is it not? Is that not our battle, flesh and blood? Do we not oftentimes, Paul said, hold the man, oh, wretched man that I am. You know, a lot of times, I don't know about you, it's, it's, it's not the things that I don't know, it's the things that I do know. How many times, you know, I find myself in my own prayer life going, oh, Lord, I wish that wouldn't have happened. I wish I wouldn't have said that. I wish I wouldn't have done that, right? These confessions of, of, of repentance in my heart and mind. Is that us? Is that you? Paul's trying to encourage the people, look, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. And, of course, he was in prison writing this, and so he wanted those guys to know, hey, look, whether or not I, I, I'm able to come back to you or whether I go on to be with the Lord, to live as Christ, my life is dedicated to the purpose of the gospel. And that's for your benefit, Paul says, because I want to continue to encourage you to experience the joy of the gospel. And so that's what he's been saying prior to this. And so when he gets to this verse 5, he says, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Okay, you want to live this out? You want to know what this looks like? Well, let me give you the best example to follow. Let me give you the example of Christ. You want to know what, you want to know what Christmas is all about? Here's what Christmas is all about, church. Humility. And we are selfish, self-centered people. Right? I want my way. You want your way. Wiser are warring? Remember we've talked about this? And that's the reason why Paul says, look, if you want to have joy, it's going to take unity. And when there's unity, that means giving, esteeming others greater than self. And that's a battle. We all continue to battle. And so we want to know the secret? Here's the secret. And he's going to give us that example. And so let's look at this example of the coming of Christ. And so Paul will begin, and he says, I want you to consider Christ's attributes. Notice, if you would, here. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. What does he mean here when he says, being in the form of God? Being in the form of God. Of God. Uh, Paul affirms that Jesus eternally has been God. He, he, he's the, the usual Greek word here for being is not used here. Instead, Paul chose another term that stresses the essence of a person's nature, his continuous state or condition. Paul also could have chosen one of two Greek words for form, but he chose the one that specifically denotes the essential, unchanging character of something. What it is in and of itself. The fundamental doctrine of Christ's deity has always encompassed these crucial characteristics. John MacArthur. So when we consider 
Christ coming, being in the form of God. He's always been God. Prior to his incarnation, Jesus Christ was God. You remember when he prayed, he wants to return. He longs for returning to the glory he had with his Father. Again, indication of his deity. He's always been. Christ was not created. I don't care what the cults uh, would try to say. Those who would try to convince you that somehow Jesus came into being in the, that he was birthed, that he was created. That's a lie. That's a false. That is, that is a denial of the deity of Christ. It's heretical. And so we need to be careful that we understand that God enrobed himself in humanity. The second person of the Godhead Trinity, the Son, stepped into the robe of man, taking on the form of man. And yet, he, maybe a good way to, to, to consider this, to understand this, he cloaked his deity with humanity. Let me say that again. He cloaked his deity with humanity. That's why on the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember when he, he said, hey, he took the guys up and he, they, he, they got a glimpse of the glory of God. And you'll see it as well at times, again, when it was in, and we'll, we'll see this as we kind of continue through this, at the will of the Father, you see those glimpses of His deity, those moments in the life of Christ. And so this passage that Paul is going to lay out for us, he's going to describe in the coming of Christ that He was cloaked in humanity. We're going to see that He emptied Himself, not of deity, He's fully God, and yet He's fully man. And so, let's continue to uh, uh, understand this as we go through the passage. So we see the coming of Christ, and so we consider His attributes. And that being in the form of God, we, we also see that in the coming we consider Christ's attitude. Being in the form of God, He did not consider it robbery. What does that mean? What does it mean that he did not consider it robbery? Well, we continue on. Listen to this. The Greek word is translated robbery here because it originally meant a thing seized by robbery. It eventually came to mean anything clutched, embraced, or prized. And thus is sometimes translated grasped or held onto. Though Christ had all the rights, privileges, and honors of deity which He was worthy of and could never be disqualified from, His attitude was not to cling to those things of His position, but to be willing to give them up for a season. Think about the context. You and I want to know how to be unified in Christ? What did Christ do? He emptied Himself. You talk about amazing grace and amazing humility to be God incarnate. To know that at any moment you could have called 10,000 angels and... <sighs> he spoke and things leaped into existence, yet He subjected Himself to the will of the Father into the hands of sinful man. 
man, I have a hard time giving up the front parking space at Walmart. I mean, you know? Oh, miserable people are we. <laughs> but don't we need a Savior like this? I mean, don't we need a God who's, who is loving and is gracious and merciful and kind? And so we see the coming of Christ. We consider Christ's attributes. We consider Christ's attitude. He did not consider it robbery. We also consider Christ's assertion. Notice what he says here. He said that he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. To be equal with God. The Greek word equal defines things that are exactly the same in size, quantity, quality, character, and number in every sense. Jesus is equal to God and constantly claimed to be so during His earthly ministry. Again, this is the very reason that the Jews took up stones to kill Him. Who is this man that makes himself equal with God? Blasphemy! So they thought. And again, either what Jesus is claiming to be true is a lie, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And so, in the coming of Christ, we see these things. And then we see not only Christ's attributes and Christ's attitude, his, Christ's assertion, we also see Christ's appearance. And, and notice, again, and this is where we're going to spend a, a bulk of our time. And because what we see here is Christ in his self-renunciation. He emptied himself. And this is where a lot of times in theological circles they, they kind of uh, miss it. And we, there's some heretical teaching that's out there in regards to this understanding of him emptying himself. And again, it's mainly because they think somehow he, he set aside his godliness to take on the form of a man. And that's not what the text is saying. And so we're going to dig in a little deeper here and, and try to better understand what's going on. So in this section, there's a word here. It's a, it's, it's a Greek word, and it's canoe. And it's actually where we get uh, the theological word kenosis from. And so this word kenosis uh, means to empty. Okay? And... Um, and so as we understand this, I want to kind of entertain you with a question to help us sort of better understand this. The kenosis, what is it? It's a theological term, thrown around, but what is it? So to help you better understand, here's the question. Did the baby in the manger know that the world was round? I thought about giving a show of hands, but I ain't going to do that to you. So just think and ponder. Let's ponder this question for a second in our heart. Did the baby, baby Jesus. By the way, that King of Country song with Dolly Parton. How many of y'all like that song? I like that song. I like that song. I always make fun of it in my car, though, because I, I always change it up. Like Dolly says, baby Jesus. Any of my, my kids, it drives them crazy. Um, did baby Jesus know that the world was round? All right. Here we go. Let's see what we can find out about this. Now, to help me out with this, I'm going to, I'm going to read you a, a, an article, a wonderful article. And, uh, and so you'll see it's, it's found in Compelling Truth, if you want to look this up. Um, but, so, one of the great mysteries contained in the Bible 
is that it teaches that Jesus is fully God and also that He's fully man. Speaking of both Christ's divinity and humanity. Here's what the Apostle John writes. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Fast forward, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And again, we know that that's speaking of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And yet that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John writes, we beheld His glory. And so, note that the Word was and is God and that the Word became and lived among His created beings. This fact, however, causes a number of questions. One such is whether Jesus, being God, thus omniscient, all-knowing, knew everything when He walked this earth as a man. How could Jesus be God yet grow and become strong Increasing in wisdom. Isn't that what Luke 2.40 says? It says he grew in wisdom and stature, right? So how is this possible? The answer is found in Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. So again, the Greek word here, emptied, is canoe, from which we get the theological term kenosis. The kenosis of Christ is his emptying himself of certain divine privileges to become a servant for those he loves. But what exactly did Christ empty himself of? So I'm going to give you four things that he emptied himself of. And there's others, you can, you can think through this, but in general, here's what we're looking at. First, he emptied himself of, of the position in relation to the law. Although not personally guilty of any sin, Jesus willingly took the sins of those he saves. Right? That's part of his coming. Why do we have baby Jesus in the manger? Because he's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to live a sinless life. Because you and I can't keep the law. We're guilty. We're sinners. We're lawbreakers. Because of one man's offense, Adam, death entered into the world. And that's been passed down. And you and I, by nature, are sinners. We're lawbreakers. And you and I cannot keep the law. We have the Adamic nature. We have a depravity. We are fallen in our nature. And so... We're set on a course towards hell from the first breath. And so as we move forward in life, there's none that seeks after God. Yet here's Christ taking on uh, the robe of man, not born of the seed of a man, but placed in the womb through the Holy Spirit of God and we see Christ in His incarnation subjecting himself willingly to the law. 
Remember when he shows up at the baptism uh, of John and, and, and he says, I need you to baptize me. And John's like, whoa, man, I can't eat. Look, I'm not worthy to even take the sandals off your feet. Strap those things on. And he says, look, we're doing this because scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus, even though he's the great lawgiver, he submitted himself to that. Subjected himself to that. So, Paul again writes this. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, he was willing to take on the sin, the punishment that you and I deserve. That's Christ's coming at Christmas, and we can praise God for Christmas because of that. Second, we see he emptied himself of his rightful ownership of everything. In this sense, although he created everything, Jesus had to borrow, right? Place to be born, homes to sleep in, boats to preach in, animals to ride on. Um, he, again, was willing to, even though he, he does rightfully own those things, he's creator God, he owns everything. By the way, newsflash... He owns everything you and I own. He's the owner. We don't own anything. We're managers. You realize that, right? For many of you who are laboring so hard for, for your bank accounts and your retirement accounts and your, you know, he who dies with many toys still dies, right? It's not ours. It all belongs to God. Every single bit of it. Even our health and ability to achieve it belongs to God. We fool ourselves to think that somehow... It's dependent upon me. And so we should praise God for at Christmas, praise God for Christmas, praise God for the very breath He gives us, praise God for the ability to do what we do, understanding He owns it all, and I'm simply a manager. Man, I'm telling you, it's a revolutionary change in, in mindset when we understand it's God's anyway. And so if I become a conduit of His grace, I simply live life like this which allows plenty to come in and plenty to go out at His will. His will be done. And when we look at God, is God not a gracious God? Is He not a generous giver? Is He not a hilarious giver? Therefore, you and I should be those types of givers, givers of life, of love, of grace, of compassion, various things that we see God giving us daily. And so, not only did He empty Himself of those things, we also see... Um, that he emptied himself of his heavenly glory that he shared with his Father. Again, right before his rest, Jesus prayed, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Again, Jesus was not created. He's the creator. He was there in glory with the Father before the foundation of the world was ever even spoken into existence. By Him all things consist and hold together. Last, Jesus emptied Himself of His divine knowledge. This required Jesus to rely solely on the Father for what He knew. And that's why Jesus, although He is God, did not know what His second coming, when the second coming would occur. Remember in Matthew uh, 24, 36? Um, turn over there for a second. Hold your spot. Let's go over there. Matthew And so if you look at Matthew verse chapter 24, 
And you'll recall the uh, disciples are asking uh, again, um, you know, when? And he says, uh, uh, surely I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And, and, and previously there, there's the, and, and I, may have, I must have jotted this down wrong, but that's okay, I'll give you the paraphrase of it. Um, when will the end come? When will your coming be? And he says that uh, when that time has come, when that hour is, no one knows but the Father. Now think with me for a second. This is Jesus, God incarnate and yet when asked when is the end and he says that that time's committed to the father to know what he's displaying there again is it, it many times in jesus life and his humanity he subjected himself to not know these things not to reveal that glory he is submitting to the will of the father he's showing that humility to him jesus in his deity had the rights of every Thing that God has, and yet He willingly emptied Himself of that knowledge, subjecting Himself into the form of humanity. He had voluntarily given, given up that knowledge to live that life as a man. There are a number of other passages that, that speak to Jesus emptying uh, Himself of the divine knowledge. He said, He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that what I have heard from Him. John 8, 26. Again, he, he is yielding in submission to the Father. John 8, 28 says this, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Now think about that for a minute. Again, Jesus, fully God, fully human, yet we see in His example that he was submissive within the Godhead. Co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father, yet yielding in position, in function. Yielding in his position, in his function to the will of the Father. All that I've heard from my Father... I've made known to you, John 15, 15. With the kenosis, Jesus provided an example of how we all should live in complete dependence upon God for everything, including the knowledge and wisdom that we need. So, I know you're saying, are you going to answer the question or not? So, did baby Jesus in the manger know that the world was round? In his divine nature, yes. Jesus knew that fact. But during the time of his earthly ministry, he willingly emptied himself of numerous divine privileges. Thus, in his human nature, he did not have the immediate knowledge. Does that make sense? Fully human, 100% man, 100% God. So, he emptied Himself. He submitted in reverence uh, to the will of the Father. So consider Christ's appearance. He submitted in reverence, right? As a bondservant, he submitted himself, okay? As a bondservant, the word doulos means slave. Again, who's he a slave to? I've just read you passages. He was, he was on this earth to do the will of his Father. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying. 
His humanity is screaming. He knows he's getting ready to go to the cross. If there's any other way to accomplish this salvation, Father, let this cup pass from me. His humanity did not want to. Would your humanity want to? I have a hard enough time as I get older to get up in a deer stand in freezing cold weather like this, right? My humanity doesn't want to go out there as I get older, right? Can you imagine facing the cruel cross? I mean, hello? He says, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done. Thy will be done. He was yielded, submitted, and reverence as a slave to the will of the Father. Guys, do you realize you're not your own? Church, we're, we're not our own. We're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The same mind that was in Christ Jesus should be in you. It should be in me. We should be willing to have that honest dialogue in our humanity. You know, I really don't want to do this. God, I'm just being honest with you. My human, I don't really don't want to do this. But nevertheless... Not my will be done. Your will be done. And I take a step of faith in trusting that God's way is better than my way. And so I'm yielded to Him. I'm submitted in reverence to Him. Guys, when we begin to live out that type of life, one with another and in the community around us, that's the transforming grace the world desperately needs to see. Because it's not a self-first love. It's an others-first mentality. And that's joy, right? Jesus, others, you. That's joy. That actually begins to transform my way of thinking. It begins to change my heart. It actually allows me to experience transformational grace on a level I have not yet arrived at. And as we step by faith and step by faith, we begin to experience more and more of that grace until one day we do arrive in the very presence of glory. And will fully understand. And so, as a bondservant, Jesus was submitted in reverence to the bodily weaknesses. Again, God who never grows weary, He doesn't sleep, He doesn't slumber. But wait a minute, Jesus in His humanity got hungry, right? He got weak. He needed a little getaway every now and then like all of us, right? And so we see this. He, he grew tired, he, he grew weary, and so in his humanity, he can relate to you, he can relate to me. We, again, what separates Christianity, biblical Christianity, from all the other religions in the world is man in religion is attempting to reach God. We're trying to do all we can to get to God and, and, and better our circumstances and us reaching to God. But biblical Christianity is God reaching down to man. And not just reaching down to man, but taking on the form of a man so that he can relate to you in every way. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be tempted yet without sin. And it's because of that that he's willing to take on the punishment that you and I deserve. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so it took a God-man to bridge the gap between man and God. And Jesus is that God-man. And so the coming of Christ leads to the cross of Christ. 
And so consider Christ's humility as we look at this. Christ's humility. We see in verse uh, 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So we see that he came in humility, 8a. We see that he continued in obedience in this verse. And then we see that he carried our sins to the cross. Coming in the likeness of men. Coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. You know, when he stepped into time, he stepped into a certain time period. He stepped into a, a, a culture and he willingly subjected himself there. He humbled himself there. I, I mean, again, imagine, Christ is not confounded by time. This is one of the reasons why I have such a problem with the prosperity gospel. Okay, the prosperity gospel somehow tries to put on man that, oh, you just don't have enough faith if you don't have success, wealth, and health. You're somehow, you know, must not be right with God. But wait a minute, Jesus and the apostles, when I read their accounts, they suffered. They had very little earthly goods and pretty much everything they lost uh, through their service in faithful obedience to the Father. Jesus said, hey, foxes have holes. I don't even have a place to lay my head. We don't see a whole lot of earthly goods in the life of Christ, do we not? But oh, the riches of glory in heaven. And so we consider Christ's humility when He came, when He continued, and when He carried our sins to the cross. You know, it's been said that you might die for a good man. You know, you, you think of your family or something, you know, you may lay down your life for, for the... But while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. The humility of Him humbling Himself not only at the incarnation, Jesus further humbled himself at the cross of Calvary. Again, as you celebrate Christmas, praise God for Christmas, but I want you to praise God for the cross. His mission in stepping into the world was set before him, and he subjected himself willingly for our sake. And so as you and I seek to live our Christian life, may we do so with the mind of Christ. Not only did He come and continue and carry, He, he conquered. Amen? He conquered the grave, which brings us to the confession of Christ. The confession of Christ. Notice if you were, would here in verses 9 through 11. Therefore God also highly exalted Him, You know, the principle of Christianity is humility leads to exaltation. Christ left glory, humbled himself 
into humanity. And the Father has highly exalted him to glory. He's highly exalted. He's given a name. He's given a name above every name. And it says here that uh, he is highly exalted. God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And whether that name is in heaven, and whether that name is on earth, or whether that, th- uh, that name is under the earth, Here's a truth and a promise in in a world that's forever changing. Here's a forever truth that's unchanging. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Every tongue will confess. We can either currently... By faith, because of grace, receive the greatest gift ever given to mankind. This Christmas, you, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I beg of you, consider the offer of grace that God has given to the world. His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever shall believe in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's a gift, guys. That's not something you and I earn. That's a gift. And God extends that gift even today through His grace, through His love. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And all you must do is by faith repent and believe. Receive that gift It's been paid in full. And the question is, what will you do with Jesus Christ? Will you receive Him or will you reject Him? Because you can receive Him now and confess Him as Lord. The confession of Christ. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. I've surrendered my life to Christ. I'm no longer my own. I'm bought with a price. And so my desire now is to live a life separated unto Christ, to honor Him, to glorify Him. Do I do that perfectly? Absolutely not. But he's not dependent on my perfection. I'm dependent upon his. And his perfection has paid it in full. It's satisfied the debt. But a new transformed heart, a new indwelling Holy Spirit, a new nature that now resides within this old crusty body, his longing to love and live for my Lord. And so, in a very imperfect way, I step daily. In a very imperfect way, you step daily by the grace of God. But you recognize you're not your own. You're bought with a price. And I pray that your desire is to honor Christ with your life. And you can do that now. Or you can reject that that offer of grace. And one day, in judgment, you will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. You will confess with your mouth, He is Lord to the glory of the Father. Because Jesus stepped in to time and robed in humanity. 
and he went to the cross of Calvary and he conquered the grave. And he alone is the only name, only name under heaven given amongst men by which to be saved. And God the Father has highly exalted him. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. It's finished. It all is his. He's the rightful king and he's the coming king and one day he will return and he will set up his earthly rule and reign. There will be a millennial kingdom upon this earth at his second coming when he steps foot down on the Mount of Olives. This world will be judged. There's coming a time that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Whether it's in heaven, by the way, all the angels that are around him now, right? The, the seraphim, and the, they, they, they glorify him. They, they call him Lord. They glorify him now. Those on earth, for those of us who do know Him, again, we call Him Lord. We glorify Him for those who will be saved. But then also those under the earth, those who've died, those who've gone to the grave. They're, they're, again, there will come a day, whether it's the saints of old, the current saints or the saints to be, whether it will be the lost who will forever perish in the lake of fire, everyone will Confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so we praise God for Christmas because He is Lord. He is Lord. The confession of Christ. And then we see also that in the confession of Christ, He's honored eternally. So not only is He highly exalted, He's Honored eternally. You see, the purpose of his exaltation is to bring glory to God the Father. And what is our purpose for living? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And it's only found in Christ Jesus. We can praise God for Christmas today. So let's conclude this. Conclusion. This Christmas, we can praise God because of the coming of Christ. We can praise God for Christmas because of the cross of Christ. And we can praise God for Christmas because of the confession of Christ. You remember that song, Joy to the World? It's one of the greatest Christmas songs ever written. But did you think about the lyrics of that song for a minute? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Right? Wait a minute. That song's not a first coming song. That song's about his second coming. Isn't it interesting that one of the most celebrated songs isn't even about his incarnation. It's about his coming to rule and to reign. Now, again, as has been mentioned, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then He does rule and reign. His kingdom is set up in your heart. And we are His ambassadors. We are a holy nation. We are a royal priesthood. These are our titles in Christ Jesus. So do you know Him today? And if you know him today, to give the context of what Paul is talking to us about in Philippians, there should be joy. 
Joy is an eternal abode. It's not based upon our happenings. Happiness is based on our happenings. I'm not concerned about being happy in this world, but man, I'm sure concerned about being holy. And the holiness is found in Christ Jesus. And also found in Christ Jesus is joy. Jesus, others, you take away. You want to let this mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus? You want to praise God for Christmas? Let's think about this this Christmas. Whatever we possess, whatever gifts you're going to get under the Christmas tree, kiddos, whatever we possess should be set aside in our service to others. Jesus did not cling to His heavenly throne. Why should we cling to our earthly possessions? We must be willing to empty ourselves for the sake of the gospel. That's exactly what Jesus did. Are you and I willing to experience the joy to let our conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ? One spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Are we willing to suffer in our life the conflicts, the adversaries for the sake of the gospel? I close with a poem from Joseph Bailey. Praise Him for the incarnation, for the Word made flesh, I will not sing of shepherds watching flocks on frosty nights or angel choristers. I will not sing of a stable bear in Bethlehem or lowing oxen, wise men trailing star with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Tonight, I will sing praise to the Father who stood on heaven's threshold and said farewell to His Son as He stepped across the stars to Bethlehem and Jerusalem. And I will sing praise to the infinite, eternal Son who became most finite, a baby, who would one day be executed for my crime. Praise Him in the heavens. Praise Him in the stable. Praise Him in my heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can know the joy of Christmas because we can know Christ of Christmas. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming. Thank you for your finished work. Thank you for going to the cross at Calvary and bearing our sins. Lord, you paid what we could never pay. You paid it in your shed blood. Thank you for redeeming me out of the marketplace of sin. For giving us as believers a new life, a new identity in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And the old things have passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. Lord, thank you for that transforming grace. And my prayer is if there's anyone watching this Christmas message this day 
that's here in this audience or Lord watching online, if they do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, our prayer collectively, Lord, let them call upon your name. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. May they bow their heart and surrender today and by faith receive Christ. To as many as received Him, to them He gives the right to become the children of God. And so, Lord, may they receive the greatest gift they could ever receive. Thank you for the joy, the example, and may this mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. And we'll give you the praise, for we ask it in His precious name, in Jesus Christ's name. And all of God's people said, Amen. I hope you'll have a blessed Christmas. Um, again, no Wednesday evening service. Uh, there's, there is this evening, if anybody would like to join, where the teens are going to be meeting. We're going to be watching Elf at 5 o'clock and having some popcorn, just sort of hanging out. Anyone's welcome to join us if you'd like. We'll be over in the teen room. And so just a, just a fun evening. Um, and uh, next Sunday, no Sunday school. So plan on being here for worship time. And uh, we'll, we'll pick up from here because I think the uh, next message in line is a really good uh, first of the year challenge for all of us. So uh, I hope you can make it back for that. Uh, we're going to uh, close and dismiss and our members. Uh, if you could just hang around for a few minutes, we just need to approve next year's budget and uh, also review this past month's finances. So again, thank you for being with us. If you're visiting, please fill out a visitor card. Love to have you. Um, come back, join us again. We're certainly thankful you chose to be with us today. Um, with that said, uh, let's close in a brief word of prayer. Thank you, Father, again for the time. And we uh, ask your blessing on those unable to be with us today, those watching online, and pray that your message, as you promise, would accomplish what it's sent forth to do and it would not return void. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>